Hello, you have stumbled onto another episode of Get Your Fill, Financial Independence and Long Life, where we strive for ways to achieve those two goals. Part of the responsibility of financial independence is giving back to the community, serving your community that helped you to get where you are today, if you will. And that's why I'm so delighted to welcome our esteemed panel of experts in Opportunity Zones. Opportunity Zones are just that. They are an opportunity to both safeguard our financial independence and to give back to the community. So joining me today, we have Rudy Bester, who is the CEO and Managing Director of Memory Trees Companies. Uh, Rudy retired from an executive career in financial technology to focus primarily on his family's charitable foundation, and their mission is giving back life in abundance. Memory Trees Corporation registered as tax exempt as a 501c3 consultative agency representing ECOSOC in the USA. The NGO works with global partners to create social impact and thought leadership strategies focused on three primary SDG objectives, no poverty, zero hunger, and health and well-being. Three fantastic goals that I echo as well. Denise Cleveland Leggett is the Southeast Regional Administrator of the U.S. Department of Housing and Irving Development's largest region in the nation. Based in the Atlanta Regional Office, she oversees HUD programs and operations in Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. And most importantly, she attended Boston University in my own hometown. <laughs> Cornell Cruz Jr. is the Executive Director of the Community Reinvestment Alliance of South Florida, a nonprofit membership organization serving Miami-Dade, Broward, and Palm Beach counties, dedicated to the enforcement and preservation of the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. His previous employment includes 16 years at the Partners for Self-Employment, Inc. Ben Toro Spears is the Chief Strategy Officer for the Florida Housing Coalition with an extensive background in affordable housing and community development real estate finance, and data management. Ben's expertise includes fair housing, strategic planning, affordable housing development, geospatial analysis, and housing and community development activity impact assessments. And each of my guests today has a much longer and much more robust history than I'm able to share with you here. So please check out the website, getyourfillpodcast.com to learn more about them. You can also see the video there. As a co-host and helper and as my mentor and Friend Ann McNeil is also joining us today. And Ann is the president of MCO Construction. And, and that is, and Ann, correct me if I'm misspeaking, but that is the first African American owned, female African American owned construction company in South Florida. And I bet not just South Florida. And she's, Ann is also the president, uh, sorry, the founder of the National Association of Black Women in Construction. She is a mentor, a speaker. She is many things, many things, and I'm grateful to call her my friend. First of all, everyone, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. I'd like to start off today with an overview of the intention of Opportunity Zones and why an investor would be interested in taking advantage of that. And I, I think the, per, the, most, the most qualified person to speak to that is, is you, Denise. Would you mind taking that? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, first, I want to say thank you, uh, Christine. It's a pleasure to be here with all of you all today. Um, I um, have had the privilege of overseeing a number of different incredible programs at HUD, uh, programs that deal with the homeless, programs that deal with foster youth, and uh, too many to, to count. But among those I, that I'm uh, in charge of or oversee, uh, is the Opportunity Zones. And I am so excited about this particular program. Opportunity Zones were created by the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And it was, it was uh, implemented by uh, this administration, this president. Um, it creates uh, capital gains benefits for those willing to invest in blighted, low-income uh, low and undercapitalized communities. As a matter of fact, some of our worst communities uh, are the beneficiaries from these opportunity zones. And the tax benefits are, if you hold the investment uh, in these communities for five years, uh, you get a 10% exclusion of capital gains. Uh, if you uh, invest seven years, it's, you get a 15% uh, exclusion. And if you uh, invest for a 10-year period, which is what we really want, 
uh, there are no capital gains um, taxes and you and uh, you reap the benefit. Not only do you reap the benefit, but more importantly, our communities reap the benefit. And I hope to tell you about some of those um, as we um, as we go, go on. When the law was first created, the hope was that there would be a hundred billion dollars invested over a 10 year period. Um, it, you know, uh, it, it, that was the goal. The reality is that as of the end of 2017, 2019, in just two years, Opportunity Zones have driven $75 billion in new investments in these communities that I'm talking about. And as of the end of 2019, investment that would not have entered Opportunity Zones without the incentive. The Opportunity Zones were created by all 50 states. The governors were given the uh, responsibility and so that the federal government didn't want to say, okay, this is the Opportunity Zone. We wanted to make sure that the states had the, um, the ability to determine who the opportunity zone or what the opportunity zones were. And so all of uh, 50 governors uh, put in the opportunity zones and they have to be, um, they looked at the Census Bureau and we have to, they had to look at what the, um, the economic um, downturn or, or, or disadvantaged areas and so they created those opportunities so all 50 uh, states there are over 8700 opportunity zones in the country and uh, I am so excited because not only have I uh, been able to be at groundbreakings uh, for opportunity zones I've actually seen uh, the work that has gone on in these communities and it's, it's, it's amazing. It, it is life-changing. And one last thing, my brother, who is also a lawyer, used to um, oversee the, the um, Empowerment Zones, uh, which is another um, organization, another uh, program that was implemented a few uh, decades ago uh, by another administration. And um, so I asked him when um, I was uh, tasked with overseeing Opportunity Zones in the region, and wanted to get his, his his opinion because he had done you know programs that were trying to help these communities, but he said the opportunity zones are life changing, and they're life changing for a number of diff different reasons. With the empowerment zone, they were totally dependent on government funding. So if the government funding goes down, which it eventually did, the empowerment zones go down. Uh, with opportunity zones, it drives private investor in investment. And people say, well, it's just a you know, ploy for the rich to you know, give them an, an, um, tax incentives and advantages. But that's not what it is, because I've seen it firsthand. What it does is it invokes people to say, okay, this community is worth investing in. Yes, the incentive is a tax incentive, but the ultimate goal is to change the trajectory for the lives of the people in that community. And I am so proud to be a part of Opportunity Zones. Uh, we are uh, just starting the, the 75 billion in two years. We hope to double that uh, as the years go on, but that's uh, a general overview. Uh, there, at the uh, end of this, I'll give you websites to, that you can go to to get more information on Opportunity Zones, one from HUD, uh, and uh, two from HUD, uh, one from the Department of Commerce and the um, IRS, one from the IRS that gives you more off, uh, information on opportunity zones. Thank you so much, Denise. Now, each of our guests today has had some per first-hand experience with opportunity zones. So I would like to just ask each of you to give us an overview of what your personal experience has been and then we can launch into some other things, other topics. Um, Rudy, would you start that off for us? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks, Christine, and thank you for inviting me to join the panel. It's, uh, it's, it's great to have this opportunity uh, to also learn from uh, many of you because uh, most of you, I think, are, are sort of real estate or, or fixed asset type uh, pros in terms of not only your day-to-day uh, -day activity, but also in terms of your knowledge about opportunity zones. My focus is primarily business. Um, so for me, the um, opportunity zone um, angle is, is sort of a combination of some of our operating entities. 
So uh, when Christine made the introduction, she mentioned Memory Trees Corporation, which is our 501c3. It focuses on community revitalization as an objective anyway, but we have additional um, operating entities and one of them is MTC for Memory Trees Corporation or companies, MTC Equity Partners, which is actually an Opportunity Zone fund. And I'm the fund manager for that fund. So um, the, the good news is I'm the fund manager. The bad news is I have to act really quickly because um, under the legislation, when um, we have funding available for uh, allocation, uh, capital investment, um, I literally have 90 days to, uh, to move that capital from the fund into the opportunity zone uh, in terms of making an investment. My, um, my approach in, in terms of the actual fund, uh, and, and this is actually kind of a, uh, a bit of an irony in terms of what I'm gonna share with you because of the timeline and the date line, but uh, for 2020, uh, we made our first um, and single investment in an opportunity zone business. Uh, and, and the reason why I say there's some irony is because the, the date of the actual investment was March the 16th. So in theory, you could say that was the date we opened the business and that was the same date we closed the business because of COVID-19. Uh, now, if you think of it from a, a, a pure timing point of view, uh, fortunately with capital allocated, the business is able to weather the storm and to survive in the absence of generating revenue for, in this case, a six month period. So uh, uh, in that sense, just merely making an investment in a business located in an opportunity zone uh, actually provided some level of sustainability, certainly financial sustainability, for the business to continue operating and actually be a viable uh, entity. The, um, the timeline that I just mentioned, so the sort of start date for us, which, which was March 16th, which was also the, the same date we closed, is only now kind of migrating or evolving into a sort of a, a, an, a new evolutionary type environment where we can say, now we can start doing business again. You know, so um, it, it's, it's been an interesting experience because for the entire fiscal year to date, 2020, we've done one deal and that deal has been effectively uh, inactive uh, almost since the date of inception to today. You know, so um, my approach there uh, is um, when I view it in terms of what probably, and maybe I'm generalizing and it's not fair, but uh, what, what you guys do from a, a, an opportunity zone in investment point of view in terms of investing in real estate, uh, you are, if I can use an analogy, you are sort of the, the Warren Buffetts of, of the opportunity zones because it's patient capital coming in and it's primarily focused on real estate, which means it's sort of a passive investment. So uh, using that same analogy, I would say uh, in that example, if you're Warren Buffett, I'd be Carl Icahn. So I'd be the activist investor who actually moves into an opportunity zone, finds an underperforming business, uh, a, a business that, that um, can benefit from uh, an injection of, of capital. And I would invest in a business in an opportunity zone uh, as opposed to making a passive investment in real estate. So my approach is probably different to most of yours, but uh, as I said, I'm making an assumption because I don't know you. Excellent, thank you, Rudy. That's, I, I like that you're here and doing businesses versus real estate because that's nice, because we might have mistakenly brushed over that whole side of the opportunity zone and just focused on the real estate. So I'm glad you're here to keep us on track with that. Um, Cornell, could you give us an overview of your experiences with Opportunity Zones? Um, good afternoon, everyone, and 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 thank you for for having me, Christina. I appreciate it. Um, I think my experience is a little different. And um, while I love the program and it's and it's in uh, the and and the thought process of the program and what the program is supposed to do. I don't see that happening a lot here in Miami-Dade County. Um, I can give you two examples. One is less than, it's less than two miles from my house um, in North Miami, Florida. Um, the area was, a, was actually a, a government dump um, throughout, my, throughout my, my teenage years. It was in the 70s into the 80s, it was always a dump. They finally closed it. It took them, what, 30 or 40 years to clean it up. It's 220, 221 acres. They have, have three building, three developments on it now. 
three buildings are that are on it now. Um, and the whole entire area is an opportunity zone. But the 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 rents in the building for a one bedroom started eighteen hundred dollars. Here in Miami Dade County, for low to moderate income folks, and that's in the low to moderate income census tract, for those folks, they can't afford that. We are at this particular point, Miami Homes for All put out a study in, in, uh, in uh, August. In Miami-Dade County alone, we need 121,000 affordable units as of, July, as of last July. That's what we need in this county. Um, so the opportunity zone, as far as that particular, particular project is going, I just don't see it. I, I can see where, as as um, young lady was speaking earlier, and I'm sorry, your name escapes me, but um, um, was speaking earlier how people are saying that this is just a land grab for the rich. But if you think about it from that point of view and you look at that project, I can understand why that's being said. We have another project in Overtown in, in uh, downtown Miami, just north of, of downtown. Uh, it was a historically black, black area. My grandmother um, owned a beauty shop in that area for over 40 years. My mother grew up there. My father lived there for many, many years. I know the area very, very well. There's directly across the street from where my mother's beauty shop um, was. They're putting up a building, 337 units, and it's an opportunity zone. 337 units of those 337 units, only 35 are for, for uh, low to moderate income folks. And that's up to 140%. So why I love the concept of an opportunity zone investing in blighted areas, um, especially when it comes to, comes to housing, investing in blighted areas. Um, I love the concept. In some places, it's, not, it's just not happening. It's, it, it appears to be a, 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 let me be as diplomatic as possible. It appears to be another land grab for the rich. And here in South Florida, um, we, we just can't, we can't stand that again. You know, we have, we have a couple of things pushing up against us. We have climate change and what we call climate gentrification, where um, developers are actually going in, buying the, the land in the high ground and 90% of the high ground in all three counties runs through low to moderate income areas. So those folks are being bought out. Where are they gonna live? So I think I, 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 would, love, I, would, I, I would love to see the opportunity zones be, the concept be actually done for the people, but in some, just in those two that, that, I can, that I can relate right now, those two examples, that's not happening. Well, can I, I know you're not taking questions now, but um, I, I certainly understand, you know, your concerns. Um, I was down with Secretary Carson and Miami-Dade uh, recently, and, uh, but we went to an Opportunity Zone opening and really one of the first of its country, of its kind in the country, um, it was a combination of the Opportunity Zones, um, our housing authority down there in Miami-Dade, uh, and we had a, a the developer by the name of Related, I'm sure you're familiar with Related, who has been um, a, a stalwart in affordable housing. They have uh, some uh, um, housing not that's marked great, but this particular unit was primarily um, in the Opportunity Zone that was a, geared towards affordable housing. So it is happening in Miami-Dade. Also was in uh, Miami uh, proper with uh, Mayor Suarez and, um, you know, looking at uh, uh, potential opportunities there and projects there th where there is a set aside for affordable housing. It is a tough, um, uh, a, a, a tough uh, row in terms of finding affordable housing. It, it's the one thing that has been um, one complaint no matter where I go, um, but when you have developers who are committed, when you find developers who want to make it work, they can make it work. When we first started with Opportunity Zones, the conversation that I had, a lot of people were like, oh, developers, we can't make the numbers pencil out. We can't do affordable housing. And now we've got more and more. And I've got, I'll stop talking, but I do have other examples of, of people who are committed to get doing affordable housing within opportunity zones. 
I understand your concerns, but it is happening among some of the developments and some of the developers. Um, okay, and I, and I understand that. However, however, when I look at a project that has 337 apartments in it and only 35 go to LMIs and that's up to 140%, I have to question that. When I see a project that, that where the buildings where the building is 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 no is no less than 13 stories, the one in North Miami is no less than 13 stories, and um, an apartment, a one bedroom apartment, starts at $1,800. Or if, if, if and I know the and and I and this I've had the same discussion with Major Suarez, with Mayor Suarez as well, and 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 I see these large developers putting up 300 300 um, units and maybe 5% of those units go to affordable housing, that's not hitting, that's, and, and they're putting them up in, 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 in low to moderate income areas and low moderate income census tracts as well. Though, though at, at needing 121,000, it's barely putting a dent in, 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 into our issue, into our problem. Here's, and, 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 and here in South Florida, we can't afford to, to look five years down the road. I had this conversation with my city commissioner in, in North Miami. He wanted to say, well, Cornell, you know, we know that we own the land and um, we're going to get tax breaks. We're going to get, we're going to get the tax money from the land and we'll build, but we can't afford to wait. That's the whole issue. We have water claiming us from, we, we're, we're surrounded by water here. We have the Atlantic Ocean on one side, the Everglades on the other side. Both of those things, have, we have a narrow strip and with the water continuing to rise and, us, and the storms continuing to get worse and the affordability of our, of, of, of our area continuing to be challenged, not to mention income inequality, we just can't afford to wait. We can't afford to wait for, 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 a, for a developer to go, well, you know, I'm going to build 300 units and I'm going to give 10 units to, to affordable housing. We just can't. We, that, that's, that's not sustainable for the folks that live here. I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to go No, it's okay, that. Cornell. I know it's very, you're passionate about it, and that's beautiful. I, but I don't want to also, um, I want to give Ben an opportunity to speak, and I want to also keep it um, a little more high level than just South Florida, although I know it's obviously, like Tylene's asking the question, wh where is the accountability when these things happen? But I want to keep us on track, and we're going to, we are going to come back to that. Um, ben, could you give us your experience, please? Yeah, sure thing. So, I work for, and I do appreciate this overview of each of our perspectives because that is one of the, the fruits of this incentive is that so many people across the community development spectrum get involved. So it is important to recognize where each of us are coming from. So thank you for that structure. But uh, the organization that I work for, the Florida Housing Coalition, we're a statewide nonprofit and our mission is to ensure that there is a sufficient supply of affordable housing in every, every community in the state of Florida. So we're statewide. And what we do in pursuit of that mission is primarily working with uh, state agencies, local governments, and nonprofit developers to develop affordable housing. So we are working on a project level with uh, project sponsors. So we're helping do pre-development. We're helping line up capital for projects. And uh, on the local government side, we help address land use regulations and zoning issues and other incentives that local governments can pursue to support affordable housing. Um, so that's where that is at a high level what the Florida Housing Coalition does. Um, so my particular experience with this Opportunity Zones incentive has been a lot of um, hand-holding and instruction with project sponsors as well as uh, local governments. So when the uh, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed and we discovered this small provision in that broader bill, the Opportunity Zone incentive, a lot of local governments here in Florida were really interested in it. So we, the Florida Housing Coalition, got a whole bunch of calls asking about this incentive and how local governments can help attract private capital in these opportunity zones in those communities. Um, 
So we've been working with local governments. We have also been working with nonprofit developers and helping them try to source capital, which has been a real challenge, um, and to line up different subsidy sources. When you're talking about affordable housing, you're, the capital stack for these projects is often crazy. Um, so helping uh, kind of under low capacity nonprofit organizations manage the capital stack to include opportunity zones and, and navigate all of the different regulations across those capital sources has been a real challenge. Um, but I'll leave it at, I'll leave it there. Uh, I hope that's a good overview of what, of what I've been doing. That is an excellent overview. Thank you. And actually my next comment and question was going to be that there is, there has been an accusation and especially you see in the media of exactly what Cornell is talking about, that the opportunity zones are just a way for the rich to get richer as has always been the case, and it's much easier to make money. But it, and it has also been, um, it's not just about building affordable housing, right? It's also about pulling money into the community so that the folks that are there hopefully can benefit and bring jobs and stuff. But I, I deliberately left Denise off of that last overview because when she speaks to her experience with Opportunity Zones, I think she's also going to speak to this question that I've just raised. So Denise, could you tell us about some of the projects that you've been involved in? Yes, I'm very happy to because, you know, while I understand the pitfalls, I also have uh, seen firsthand the benefits of Opportunity Zones. Um, in, for instance, in the city of Birmingham, um, you have, they, they're a prime example because you have a collaboration between the uh, public sector, the mayor, uh, the, commu the community, and uh, developers all working together to try and accomplish a goal. Uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, we broke ground on um, a dilapidated bus uh, business of the American Life Building, and it had been abandoned. Um, and so uh, this developer, with the blessings of the city, went into this opportunity zone and this project and totally revamped it. Um, they sent us uh, uh, pictures of the, um, the, the apartments that are coming, their workforce and uh, uh, low income for residents, and it is absolutely beautiful. Um, this was in a, uh, an abandoned, blighted area, um, and so once it, this started, they are now interested in trying to do more of the same. Uh, we've got in the city of Memphis, um, the um, developers there have decided that they wanted to do a, a total revamp of the um, Memphis area. Uh, it, it was the, the rundown blighted area of, of Memphis. Uh, they have invested um, $750 million. They originally had set it at $950 million, but they did some, um, some changes. And so it, now 750 million, which is still a huge investment. And they, um, that includes not only housing, but businesses, um, as the young man had said earlier, businesses, the area where the housing authority residents are, it, there's been revamped, but it's a food desert. So they're building grocery stores, a number of other things. It's about developing the entire community. Um, I look in Vicksburg, Mississippi, where there was an old sawmill that had been run down, had gone out of business, and the developer, his family went in, bought up the sawmill, revitalized it, revamped it. It is now a working sawmill, and it uh, employs, it, it's bringing employment and their big problem now is now they're trying to, uh, to bring workforce housing to the community. Oh, it's a good problem to have when your people were out of jobs and out of work and you have an opportunity zone that the benefits of that brought that city you know, back to life. And I mentioned the Miami-Dade with the combination with Mayor Jimenez and with the housing authority there and private developers we're uh, totally revitalizing, you know, the area there. And then the other area in Miami 
is Liberty City. Liberty City was one of the worst housing authorities in the country, completely blighted, crime-ridden, and um, they have started and completed the first phase of that, where they have totally revamped. They have affordable housing there. They revamped businesses, and, and it's mixed income because mixed income communities are what help sustain communities. So you have a certain a number of a large amount of set, set asides where it becomes, where there are public housing, um, you have to match, match for match the number of public housing units, but then you can add uh, mixed income um, units which help sustain that com community. Um, there, Charlotte, the city of Charlotte is, uh, is doing um, housing. Phoenix, Arizona, who um, that's not in my region, but um, they've done multiple. And so I will also tell you a site that you can go to um, at the end of this call that will, um, we have a year look back at what has been done through Opportunity Zones and where they can be found. And so I'll give you that site so that you can, anyone on this call can take a look at what we've been doing, where these projects are, and uh, the benefits, but they're uh, they're in a number of different places, I, and I don't want to take all the time. But um, I see the benefit. It's not just talk. It's not just groundbreaking. It's not just you know we want to do this. Not, it's just not pie in the sky. I've seen it with my own eyes, and I've seen residents who are ecstatic and happy because it has changed their lives, changed their communities, and um, and I see the positive, and I, I know it exists. Thank you, Denise. And I, I can hear from, from Ben and, and Rudy both that you're looking for projects, you, you are, want to make things happen, but you're, it sounds like from Ben's perspective, you're having a little bit of trouble getting the, the funding. I mean, investors want to make money, right? That's what they do, and a tax incentive might not be enough. And it, as a matter of fact, in, in the Boston area, I've spoken to some of my friends who are developers, and they're not necessarily interested in opportunity zones because they feel that the turnaround time for their profit is going to be too long. Oh, I have to keep my money in there for 10 years. I'm not interested in that. Um, what if the community doesn't perform the way I hope it will? What if my money isn't enough to turn the community to where the, the value of the property is going to be something that's a benefit to me? So uh, there are some challenges, obviously, in, in making in serving all the different masters that we're trying to serve from with Opportunity Zones. And I'm looking for suggestions from any of the panelists who want to talk about ways that developers can, can partner with people, can find funding, can do things so that they're not just coming in and basically paving over the community and starting fresh, that they're taking the, the richness and the diversity that's already in that community and just making it stronger and making it better for everyone. Well, I, 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 I would agree with that, and I'm not going to talk long, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that it it really the fact that there are 75 billion dollars that have been invested in opportunity zones is evidence that that there are people who are finding a way. And uh, when I you know because the people are not just throwing money you know after something just to say well I feel good about you know investing in opportunity zones, it all has to pencil out. They, they, they do it um, for good reasons, but also they've got to stay in business and, and make money. And so, um, but, but it can work together. I've seen it where it works together. It doesn't work together in, in all cases, no, but it is possible. And it takes a lot of hard work and a lot of discussion to, to make it work. And, and again, I would, um, I would advise anyone when you, know, you get the site, go talk to some of the developers who have been successful and ask them, what did you do? How did, what are your best practices? We have in this study uh, showing what the best practices are. But I, I would say, talk to them. You know, uh, down in, in Florida, talk to the developers who are being successful, who've invested how do they do it and how are they uh, benefiting the community at the same time uh, being responsible to their, um, their employees and their investors. And I 
I've seen it. It's possible. It's, it's you know, um, it, it's not for everyone, um, but it, it, it can be done. Thank you, Denise. Um, ben, what have you seen working in your experiences? So the success stories so far, um, there have been a number of low-income housing tax credit deals coming out of the state of Florida. And um, I don't want to go too deep into the weeds on, on housing tax credits, but uh, suffice it to say that LIHTC has been the most productive vehicle for affordable housing production in, in our nation's history. So it is, it is an established uh, method of financing housing, uh, affordable housing in this country. So when the OZ statute first came out, we were in, in my industry, we were all very excited to explore the ways that we could marry OZ equity with uh, tax credit equity. And that has happened in isolated instances. And I say isolated because by and large, the projects, the, the tax credit deals that um, stacked some OZ into it, those projects were already happening. Um, and the, the fact that those projects were in an OZ helped low, uh, incentivize the tax credit pricing a little bit, increased uh, the value of those tax credits by just a, a bit. And that helped offset some of the uh, negative impact of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act on the cost of tax credits. Um, so in those cases, it, it has benefited tax credit deals that were already in the works. Um, other success stories, and you did prompt success stories, uh, those other success stories have really been um, generated by collaborative working groups at the local level. And often this is an initiative that starts with a, a CRA, for instance, or a nonprofit foundation organization, some non-governmental, non-project sponsor entity that can help coordinate across the different actors in that community. And in that case, there can be a third party that helps negotiate the expectations of the OZ investor with the reality of pricing units that are affordable to lower income households. Um, so that negotiation is really important because sometimes the OZ investor is, is expecting a rate of return that is unrealistic for fundamentally the, the rental the cost of rent for a unit in that building. Uh, so there, there really is a, a need for that negotiation and coordination element. And uh, when that happens, uh, when all of those stars align, you can have a pretty successful project that isn't um, just about housing. It's often about bringing together multiple stakeholders. And that can ultimately build an infrastructure in the community that can last outside of this OZ conversation. It can extend to business development and housing development. Um, so I'll leave it at that in terms of success stories in the state of Florida. Well, it sounds like what you're saying is that it, it, it has to be a partnership, that you're not going to have a success story unless you have a lot of players all signed up, all invested in this commitment. Is that accurate? Yeah. It, so at a very elemental level, we're finding that OZ is a relatively shallow subsidy in the capital stack. So you're not going to have a project. Generally, you're not going to have a project with 100% OZ equity in it to make it happen um, from a real estate perspective. So you're, you're, it is necessary for you to have other actors, financial actors, uh, local government, uh, working together to make this these projects work. Rudy, was there something that I saw? I thought I saw you, you had been wanting to say something there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I can uh, I can sort of uh, maybe add some um, some content to what Ben was sharing. Um, working with uh, with the local towns and cities around me, so I'm in Palm Beach, Florida, but the um, uh, the cities like West Palm Beach and Boynton Beach, for example. Um, have offered uh, to donate land that they own that is located in opportunity zones 
if uh, someone like in, uh, like MTC Equity Partners, our Opportunity Zone Fund, were willing to develop it. So um, that sweetens the capital stack in addition to um, the, the comments that they've been alluded to, like the tax credits, as an example. Um, the, the other thing that's, that's of interest there is from an investment point of view, uh, the investors, depending on, on what their sort of thesis is in terms of whether they're going to make an investment or not, uh, as a general rule, first want to know if it's a good investment or not. And then if it were located in an opportunity zone, that's a bonus, right? So in other words, if you, if you bring a, um, a potential investment to a group of investors, um, the first thing that they look at, to Ben's point, is, is the rate of return. And, and sometimes that rate of return has some flexibility to it as well, because there are nonprofit agencies, you know, community foundations and such like. Um, so NGO type organizations who will make concessionary investments uh, and, and forego perhaps, uh, you know, a driver for a, for a private investor, uh, like let's say a low or, or a high single digit return before they would even look at the investment. So some of the sort of more philanthropic uh, type of uh, investors will approach it from a different point of view. Uh, and then if you can sort of add to that sort of capital stack, uh, a combination of some um, concessionary investors or perhaps uh, investors who are comfortable with a, a single digit return, whatever that might be. And uh, that sort of traditional public, private, public, um, you know, partnership with, with uh, the local cities or county or whatever it might, might be, who can, as I said at the beginning, sweeten the capital stack by saying, we'll donate the land if you develop it. Uh, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, uh, in any way, uh, something that circumvents you from doing something in an opportunity zone. But the first thing is the deal. Is it a good deal? Yes or no. And then if it's in, located in an opportunity zone, as I said, that's a bonus. So it kind of works in that, in that way rather than the other way around where people if they are specifically looking to do a deal in an opportunity zone, that'd be tough because you are geographically obviously restricted by the boundaries. Thank you. Uh, Cornell, I want to ask you what you think. First of all, I want to say in the, in the areas that you were discussing earlier that you see that the, the rents are out of sight, they're just building luxury properties and not having a lot of care about the impact on the community. Are you seeing at all the, any improvements in outside of that housing development, anything out around the community, in the surrounding community that would be considered a, a little bit of a win or a little bit of a benefit of the Opportunity Zone? Um, yes. For instance, in Overtown, um, where that, that 337 apartment, uh, uh, 335 uh, project is going up, there are some other things that are being built around it. They just, as a matter of fact, um, another building that's just to the east, just to the west of that, um, that's also in an opportunity zone. Just won a just won a uh, a legal case Monday, and the target's going to go in there. Um, they have been disputing about. They have been going back and forth about the land and who owned it and so on and so forth. But it was finally settled this past Monday. But the target's going to go in there, and that's going to bring that's going to bring um, some retail to the to that particular area. Um, but to the south of that. To the south of that is still a food desert, just maybe maybe ten blocks away to the uh, correction to the north of it is, is still a food desert, and that's been a blighted area from that particular area of, of Overtown has been blighted for many many years, so I guess we'll we'll see what's going to happen. But but it, it, back to my original point, with the prices being so high, you drive those those people who live in that area now are not going to be able to afford to live in that area two years from now. That's, that's, and, and that's for me is, is what loses. I'm all for, let's have mixed social and mixed income in an area. I'm all for that because I think that builds, that builds, an, that builds an area up, but not, at the, not to the price point that um, it drives out the folks who are low to moderate income and been living there most of the families there all their lives. And, and now they got to go. And here, where are you going to go? You know, you either, what are we going to do? We're going to, we're going to move all the low, low to moderate income folks up to, to, to the central part of the state and fly them in the, in the, in the Miami-Dade County to do work. 
we have that problem already in, in, in Key West. Key West is sold as, as, as price, all the low to moderate income folks out of Key West, they now live in Homestead and have to drive two hours one way every day to work. And there's only one way to get down there and that's, and that's on US-1. So I, yeah, there are some, there, believe me, I understand, understand what she's saying, what she's saying <laughs> that there's, there's Ms. Denise Cleveland. I, under, I, I definitely understand there are some great things happening in other parts of the country and I get that. And we have small increments of things happening here. Um, and I, and I wish, I wish to God the developers in the state of Florida were like those developers in those places she mentioned. I really wish that. But, you know, I think, I think some good things can grow out of it. And like I said, I love the concept of, of the opportunity zones. I just wish that it was, it was something that was really, that was really pushing. That's not at her level. That's at the county level. Like, like Ben was stating, you know, the, the counties and the cities have to negotiate. And I, I, I honestly believe they don't know how. Yeah, I, I almost think in listening to y'all that it, it has to come from the community, that the community has to say, this is what we've envisioned for ourselves help us find that. And obviously, you know, that's a little difficult when you're just trying to put a meal on your table. So I think you need people to come in from outside who haven't lived there their whole life, but who want to keep the richness of that area and not to, you know, like you say, kick everybody out and say, okay, you can go live in, you know, North Georgia and <laughs> commute down here to Florida, right? That's not, not what you want. So I would like to invite right now real quickly because we're getting into our last 15 minutes here to invite all the folks who are listening in if anyone has some questions that you'd like to pose to the panelists. This is Ann McNeil. <laughs> yes, I am unmuting because I feel like a parent sitting here. Um, really thankful that all of your awesome guests were able to participate in the session and giving both sides. I had the pleasure. Thank you for asking me to participate in the planning of this event, but I had the pleasure of meeting every single one of these guests uh, at an opportunity. It's, it was an opportunity. Uh, Rudy at the Opportunity Zone event uh, that was hosted by Riviera Beach and also uh, had an opportunity to meet uh, both Rudy and Ben, I believe at, at uh, Riviera Beach, and then Denise uh, at the, an event in Miami for uh, Lad Builders Organization. I have received so much information sitting here listening to both sides. I get it. I get both sides. And Denise, you did not know this, but I am actually sitting in the middle of Liberty City, which is my office is in Liberty City. So I can look out of my office window and see those projects that you are referring to. So I do get it. Uh, but what I also get, though, is the fact that as the founder of the National Association for Black Women in Construction, we're unable to work on those projects. So that's a session for another day, another call. And I want to take this opportunity uh, to invite all of you to a Congressional Black Caucus reception that we're hosting tomorrow. And one of the breakout sessions is none other than on <laughs> Opportunity Zones, okay? <laughs> and so we will make sure we get those, um, those invitations to all of you uh, shortly after this, this podcast is over. But what I want to do is I want to thank you all for educating, because I think that the education is the key. And for each of us, going back to Rudy's point, we do have the power. We just have to connect at a certain level for our voice to be and for us to be able to participate. And so that is what this, this podcast has helped me. But, but I just want to just thank you. I'm going to uh, turn it back to you, Chris, and look forward to seeing all of your guests and our, our, our guests here today. But the listeners to join us, if you're interested in finding out information about our Congressional Black Caucus reception talking about opportunity zones tomorrow between five and eight you can reach us at, by going to the nabwig and be there and so chris I'll, uh, I'll release this back to you in the event others may have questions or comments thank you so very much you, Anne. and uh, if you're listening on the podcast and i don't know Anne, will that be something that people can go and listen to the recording after the event yes yes we okay. will have it we ha we'll have all of this information on our uh our Facebook group, and also Jackie Pear, who's over our marketing, we can uh, talk about making arrangements to place it on our website too. But yes, that would be great to do that. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. We'll include a link to that in the on the podcast page. Yeah, and I think Anne was breaking up a little bit, but it is nabwic.org, N-A-B-W-I-C.org is the website for that. And 
now I want to ask each of you, what did I not ask? What, where did I fall down? Where did I fail to ask you something that, or not touch on something that you really feel is important to bring up? And you can just jump in or I can go alphabetically again, if you want to do it. Well, I, this is Denise. I'll, I'll um, say my last piece. I thought this was fabulous. It's, it's wonderful getting all the perspectives. I do believe that, as you had mentioned before, it's a, a matter of collaboration, co collaboration with public, with private, with developers. Uh, one of the things that they did, that the governor, past governor, governor of Mississippi did, was he set aside a percentage of, of LIHTC um, uh, uh, for people who are invested in opportunity zones. That's the kind of collaboration we're talking about. Everybody working together. The reason why the Birmingham is so successful, because they had private, public, and community involvement in pushing forward their, uh, their developments. And so I, you know, am the eternal optimist. I want to see things work because I see so many of our programs at HUD working um, and put, but, but it takes collaboration, it takes tenacity, it takes uh, pushing forward. And, and I understand um, the, the, the pitfalls. I know them all too well. They're, they're the community that, that we serve at HUD. Vast majority of our HUD properties are in opportunity zones, which means they're in the most blighted areas. So we have a concern uh, for pu pushing up okay. these communities. And I just want to leave with the, um, the sites, um, the opportunityzones.hud.gov is one of the sites, um, eda.gov uh, slash opportunity dash zones, uh, U.S. Department of Commerce um, and Economic Development and IRS OpZone, um, oh, yeah. uh, uh, irs.gov. Uh, and they all have more information about opportunity zones and what um, you can do. They're frequently asked questions, everything that you could think of, they, they have it on those sites. And uh, we have a year old, well, a year long report that has been put out um, by um, oppor uh, opportunity uh, revitalization opportunity uh, zone committee that's headed up by Secretary Carson, but it tells you about best practices. It tells you about opportunity zones and kind of where we're headed and, and the 75 billion that's been spent to date. But thank you so much for putting this together. I think it's been fantastic. Um, I always like to hear all viewpoints and, um, and then you know see what can we do to make it better. That's always the goal. How can we make things better for the people that we serve? Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you, Denise. I appreciate it. Who would like to go next and tell me what yeah, so I should have asked you? I, I'll, I'll, just make a, I'll just make a quick comment uh, and, and I'll kind of echo what uh, Denise was saying. Uh, I think this is great. Thanks for putting it together. Uh, very briefly, um, if, I, if I were to wear sort of two different hats, on, on one hand, you as an investor, uh, you may have capital gains and obviously you have to make a decision as to where you would want to invest those capital gains, if at all. Um, but that's really sort of the, uh, the crux of the investment thesis from an investor point of view. As a fund manager, uh, the Opportunity Zone funds uh, are somewhat uh, restricted in that they have to allocate the capital very quickly because you literally, as I said earlier at the beginning, have 90 days to deploy the capital. So you have to structure and create the deal. Then you have to build the capital stack or, create, or, or, or put together the financing round and, and invite the investors in, and then you have to execute, right? So um, maybe to Mr. Cruz's comments, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a complicated uh, deal to put together because everything kind of has to fall in place domino style, uh, and it's not easy to do, but uh, I am, absolutely much like you, optimistic and encouraged by what I've seen so far, because just in my immediate vicinity, hands-on, the uh, funds that have flown from investment money that could have gone anywhere into opportunity zones has been quite significant because it's visibly noticeable. So uh, I think it's probably one of the greatest um, 
tax incentive acts for uh, revitalizing lower income communities I've, I've seen in my lifetime. Um, just Christine, I'll just, I'll just say that I'm thankful for the opportunity to speak on, 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 on my particular feelings involving the opportunity zones. Again, I'll say it again, I, I, I love the concept overall. Um, I, wish we could, I wish we could work it better. And, and I would say, and, and, and I'm not an investment guy, don't pretend to be, I, 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 I love my community. And for me, sometimes, sometimes the, the return on investment is building a better community, not just a dollar, you know, and squeezing how many dollars you can get out of it. Sometimes, that, sometimes just every now and then, <laughs> I want the community to be the, 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 and the overall health of the community to be the return on the investment. Everybody wants to make a dollar. Trust me, we all want it. We all have to eat. But some of us, sometimes you can eat a couple of hot dogs instead of having steak every day. So um, I just, I, 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 again, I love the, I love the, the, the overall concept of, of opportunity zones. I just wish we could apply it better. Thanks. Thank you, Cornell. Yeah, I think we need to study the ones that have worked and see how that, how that happened, right? Um, ben, could you give us your parting comments, what you wish I would have asked you? Yeah, well, in terms of, for me, it's a question of where do we go from here? And this Opportunity Zones, the origins of it is bipartisan in nature. Um, and you can see that in how the broad cross-section of stakeholders that saw themselves, saw benefits accruing to them at the onset of this incentive in the last few years. Um, and that's a, that's a really good thing. We need more private equity. We need this new sort of investment in communities and in affordable housing and social impact-oriented projects. We need that. Um, the, there are some structural challenges baked into this. In particular, this is a subsidy based on capital appreciation, not on community benefits. So as we're talking about next steps going forward, it sure would help out the community development industry if there was an assurance from Congress that this sort of a program will continue going forward. And, and, from a, and, and that assurance that it will continue is so important because this stuff takes time. Affordable housing takes time to, to create. We need to establish an infrastructure that works for this. The tax credit community back in 86 took years to figure it out and create a structure that could crank out deals over and over and over again. So we need to recognize that this for, for the real benefits from a systemic perspective to extend to communities in all of these opportunity zones, we need to have assurance that this is going to continue for a long time. And in order for that assurance to be secured by Congress, there need to be some changes um, so that every single community can recognize, can, can be confident that the benefits will be felt by residents in those communities. And if they do not have that assurance, if the structure continues that the subsidy is exclusively based on capital appreciation and not on community benefit, I think there's going to be a lot of pushback. So I would, I would love to see this bipartisan nature continue and for some changes. And I know con congressional action is a mountain to overcome, but uh, I also have hope that we can we can make some of those changes to make sure that everyone benefits and not exclusively equity investors. I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Ben, very much. And I want to thank you so much for being here and keeping me honest and making sure that, and, and putting me in touch with all of our panelists today. Do you have anything you'd like to say in parting? Thank you. <laughs> Beautifully spoken. <laughs> thank you so much. I learned a ton. I want to thank my esteemed panel of experts, Rudy Bester, Denise Cleveland Leggett, Cornell Cruz Jr., and Ben Toro Spears for joining me today. And of course, Ann McNeil for putting me in touch with everybody and for helping me to tap into these issues that are affecting our communities and to help make us all better 
investors. And thank you, listener, for listening. I hope that you're now looking for opportunity zones in your community that you can take advantage of and help to mold into a way that's going to serve everyone. Be sure to be here next week when we have Wilbert Winberg. Win, as we call him, is a serial entrepreneur who is also going to give us some tips on how to be how to be when you are financially independent, what your life could potentially look like and how you could potentially get there. A really super interesting guy who is just starting his meteoric rise. So you can say that you, you saw him here first or you heard him here first. All right. And in the meantime, click subscribe so you get notified whenever new podcasts come out. Go to the website, getyourfillpodcast.com to find links to everything that we talked about today, as well as link to the video and any other resources that we thought would be helpful about Opportunity Zones. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week. See you here next week for Wilbert Winberg. <laughs>